Welcome back, everybody. So I've been asked several times, as a Steve, over the last few days or few weeks, about what the idea of wedding the anima is. It's a question that's come up several times. And of course, it's a concept which was spoken about in Jung's collected works. And it's a colloquial phrase that's thrown around, whereas a man grows up and moves away from his parents. The idea, of course, is that he needs to wed his anima. But there are many things built into this particular phrase that are perhaps loaded. So the general understanding, at least from my point of view, and of course, Steve, you can tell me if you think otherwise, is that when people come and understand Jungian psychology initially, usually it's through the lens of mythic narrative and, and stories. And so they'll watch, say, for example, Star Wars, and they'll go, Princess Leia is the anima. Or Dante, as I like to bring up on this channel, Beatrice is his anima. Right? So the idea people have, I think, as I did for a really long time, is that the anima is kind of the woman in a man's mind and it is a sexual function. So to wed the anima, therefore, when it comes to life, becomes quite a confusing thing. And I think lots of people fall into that trap, including myself. So I guess, Steve, first of all, how are you? And second of all, what is the anima? If you could give, say, a 30-second breakdown of what the anima is, what do you reckon it is? I'm very well, thank you, James. Um... 30 seconds on something which has plagued uh, <laughs> human consciousness for as long as it's existed. Well, um, I think the first thing to, to say is that it's not a woman within. It's part of male psychology. That, that's the first understandable mistake that people make when they encounter Jung's work. It tends, it tends to be projected onto women, but it is not a woman. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, it's the relating factor within a man's psychology. And it's Jane's face that it points outwardly to the world and receives impressions from the world, but also the same function on the inside as well. The anima communicates the unconscious to consciousness. And when we communicate with the unconscious, we go through the anima and not the shadow. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I guess the key point in there is it's a relating factor. So to do a frame shift of the woman within yeah. is phrased generally, from my experience, as a sexual function. It's like you walk down the street and there's a beautiful girl in front of you and you anima project against her. And obviously the idea with that is it's to inspire yeah. you in presumably a reproductive manner to find a girl with the best possible genes that match your genes and then you yeah. can go and produce children. So it's, a, it's a, a survival instinct based within. But you said it was a relating factor. So I guess this means is whenever it comes to relating to somebody else or to an object or to an idea, the anima yep. is the interface through which you do that. Is that correct? It is correct, yes. With respect to, uh, to sexuality, of course, um, you should have some modicum of relating to whoever you're going to have sex with. So in that sense, the anima will be involved. Um, it's, you can tell a lot. Here's another one of my little rules of thumb observations based on decades of, of experience. The way a man treats women externally and the way he treats his unconscious internally are pretty much the same thing. So if you get a man who abuses women, generally then he's afraid of his own psyche. He's afraid of his unconscious. If he relates well to women, then he'll relate well to his unconscious and also vice versa. A man who can communicate well with his psyche will pretty much automatically communicate well with women. And that's because it's the relating function. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, a, that's a rule of thumb. We'll just get that one out. And that follows on from what I said earlier, that for a man, the anima is not a woman, not an internal woman. It just tends to be projected onto women. Um, 
and we, we can elaborate on this in due course. But just to get those two things clear, I think would be really helpful. Sweet. Okay. Okay. So obviously it's not a exclusively related to women. Obviously you do have an anima projection onto, onto beautiful women. Of course, that yeah. is then conflated with the idea of anima as such. So yeah. I guess a good way perhaps way into this topic is individuation. And, yes. uh, you know, you, as you individuate, the, the general idea is you integrate the contents of your current shadow or your alter ego, as we're going to be covering on this channel fairly, fairly soon. And then you come and you enter into a dance with the anima. But you've told me before that you, as you said earlier, I guess, you kind of ignore the shadow in a little bit, can't you? That, you, that the shadow, the anima's yeah. not within the shadow and you have to integrate the shadow first or yeah. integrate first to reach her. So is the anima, we'll say, beckoning to you and active and being that relating factor throughout your entire life. Yes, indeed. Uh, the anima is present right from the get-go, whereas the shadow is a compensatory function that develops in parallel with the ego, with normal consciousness. So you are the subject of relating immediately that you're born from usually the mother, from your primary caregiver. So in that sense, the anima is active immediately and is anticipated biologically. The shadow as it's normally understood, which is a, a personal shadow, we, we refer to it as being the alter ego complex, the nuclear complex of the personal unconscious. That's a developmental factor that emerges later on. So when Jungians advise that you must tackle the shadow first, I disagree completely with that because the anima is active anyway all the time mm. and there's absolutely nothing wrong either in personal development or in clinical work with addressing both the shadow and the anima more or less simultaneously because they're both there okay so i guess the idea with that then is uh, we, we always have an anima we we have it from we're very very young now yes. as far as i'm concerned or i'm aware there are five main archetypes right you have the, the the persona the shadow the anima the animus and the self are kind of like these these core five there might be more depending on the definition of archetype but in terms of general dialectic these will be the five main ones i think anyway that seem to come up and these as far as i'm concerned or again aware are based at the genetic level or the collective unconscious in other words we all share them and as a as a the nature of archetypes is they're more patterns that are impressed upon by yes. your particular surroundings so if yes. we're born with say the anima all of mm -hmm. us as an as an impression or a pattern over the course of your life obviously things come and they will change your particular version of the anima relative yeah. to somebody else so what are those things that will define the nature of your particular anima that's a very interesting question and again it's possible to address this at a very superficial level um the kind of level frankly you get in a lot of um a lot of Jungian works Mm -hmm. however think of it developmentally the prime imprinter of a man's anima will be his initial caregiver whoever that is but we'll, we'll assume for the, for the sake of discussion that it's the mother mm -hmm. so the prime imprinter is the relationship to the mother the mother is is obviously the one who gives um, physical support emotional support social support this is anticipated genetically so the child is in sync with the mother's psychology immediately so the anima is beginning to form immediately now with a male and we're talking obviously about the anima here and that has most relevance for men at mm -hmm. this stage at least then the relationship to the mother is the prime imprint and not only of those factors that i've mentioned but it's also a confirmation element for a young man to be a young man to be a male child 
a young boy will model masculinity from his father and in a sense that's that's obviously very very important but the the prime confirmation that you are indeed male comes from the opposite sex and this is again a biological factor so the mother will confirm in a young boy that yes you are a young boy and you will become a man like your father and like your father's peers so it's it's very very important the, re the relationship to the mother right from the get-go informing the anima and with respect to how that shapes you get an anima complex which is as you rightly say is based on the personal experience that a young man will have of various women again these are all going to be anticipated biologically even though these uh, these relationships are social uh, it may well be sisters uh, extended family uh, school teachers um, children in the street and so forth but all of these encounters will begin to shape the anima complex on top of the archetypal base which was mm -hmm. first released onto the mother mm -hmm. gotcha okay so to break down you know so we have the anima but then there's also this anima complex what's the what's the core difference between these two particular things well the anima archetype is inexperienceable directly Jung referred to it as being a virtual image and so that's like something that's been implanted genetically in us which will have indefinite characteristics with respect to the specifics but definite characteristics with respect to the overall lifespan development of a male child um, so if you like the complex rounds off and gives proper form a definite experienceable individual form to the archetype ah so it's kind of like the relating factor to the relating factor if yeah. I kind of understand. Okay, 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 cool. So it's obviously impressed upon by all these different characters. You mentioned before as well a very key figure, perhaps with mine and perhaps everybody else's, is the idea of the first love. Yes, this is, yeah. is Could this be at any age? So for, so for example, I was doing some of my personal myth stuff yesterday, which is bringing up a lot of things I, didn't, I couldn't remember for years and years and years. And there's a girl that I was dating when I was about nine. And she, 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 she was, I'm not going to be vain here, but she was kind of obsessed with me. Because uh, I remember why. It's because I swooped in like a knight in shining armor to save her from some bullies. She was actually tied. It was horrible. Tied to a chair by these bullies. And I swept in and was like, no, I am your knight in shining armor. And I pushed them away and I untied her. And from that moment on, she was very much attached to me. And she would, you know, she would um, randomly come up and kiss me. My mum used to drive her home, for, for example, after school. And at the end, she'd always kiss me and sort of whatever else. But I wouldn't count her as my first love, if you like. There was no attachment on no. my end, except kind of an ego rush. But I did yeah. when I was about 16. That's when my real first love was. So mm -hmm. by first love, is it first, say, sexual contact, which is technically kissing with another person? Or is it has to have that strong emotional love type resonance, if you see what I mean? I would say the latter out of, out of the two, because the latter comes first, usually. Mm -hmm. um, it, usually it's an experience rather like Beatrice in, in Dante's Inferno yep. um, and that is really what Jungians call a science stimulus taking it from ethology an environmental science stimulus which triggers what they call an innate release mechanism in other words there's the trigger the program is released and then the projection goes out onto the object mm. and you have a subjective experience then, which includes a rush of hormones and the anticipation of an archetypal pattern being fulfilled. So the rush of hormones is reinforcing and you want it again and you want to do it again and you want to seek out that object 
and find out why it makes you feel so good. But you also introject as well aspects of that experience and it will attach itself firstly to the anima complex and then more deeply to the anima archetype. Mm -hmm. This becomes a dialectic. So when the ego checks itself to try to understand what's happening to it in this young man's mind, he will access an impression of the virtual archetype itself in reference to the complex, in other words, the personal experience. And then you get this resultant effect, which starts to form part of the personal myth of the, mm. the first love, the ideal girlfriend and so forth. Mm. So is that why generally the first love, is it because it's the first time it's happened? Because in terms of memory, so you know, you have a first love and it's the first time it's happened. So therefore memory wise, it's, 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 it's great. You kind of remember it. Or is it because by definition of these patterns, as you say, being released forth genetically, that uh, that's why it's so significant. So why is it first love necessarily? Basically, to sum that up, you might have first love, second love, third love, 50th yeah. love. Do they yeah. all, generally speaking, decrease in kind of emotional weight and emotional yeah. quality? Or can, uh, will no. they all inform it? No, they won't. They, they won't decrease. Uh, but to go back to what you said, I would say it's actually both. They're both present. They are both factors and they interact. Okay. Um, it doesn't decrease. There is a conditioning or an associative effect, um, and which is why Jung talked about a man having an anima type. Yeah. Which is really based partly on experience, but also partly on anticipation of the archetype in itself. You've, you've also got epigenetic elements here because you may well have had ancestors, male ancestors who preferred or experienced a certain kind of image of a woman um, or an actual physical relationship so to speak, and that then becomes part of the, the uh, epigenetics that are um, translated down to you. And it, it could be that you prefer a certain look in, in a girl because your great-grandfather did. Really? It, yes, and it could even go back further than that. When, when you think that archetypal virtual images are so firmly written into the, uh, our genome that um, it's, it must be of immense power. Must be. But there are modifications that will come about through uh, epigenetics. And then there are further modifications that come about through personal experience as well. Okay. Okay. So it, it sounds so there is this ultimate destiny that underlies all of mankind. We all kind of share this, but yeah. it does very much become personal. So as you engage with the yes. anima and the anima complex yes. on those resultant images properly, you break away from the general myth of Princess Leia coming to redeem you and giving yes. you a kiss when you save her, and it becomes your yeah. own personal version of yeah. that. Just to go back to the Star Wars example, because it's a good one, I guess, um, that provides a backdrop. It's rather like going to see a Shakespearean play and then, then you see something acted out, which you can then project in and identify with, resonate with to a certain extent. And this is why archetypes properly are not individual characters, but they're whole narratives. This is why myths exist. This is even why people watch soap operas, as boring as they appear to be, they're very dreamlike, very, very dreamlike. Uh, and they're inductive and people see repeated patterns in soap op operas that are acted out with the same kind of characters um, who flow through and you can see definitely there is a pattern an archetypal pattern that underpins that and, and that's why people get addicted to it because they're, they're acting out their own lifespan development potential in relationship to this narrative not to a character if you take the character out of the narrative it's dead it's meaningless yes 
Yes, 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 yes. That yes. princess from Star Wars means nothing outside of that narrative unless you have made a personal investment by watching that film in that character, at which point you have interjected the princess into your own psyche. She becomes part of your anima complex. She, uh, that image then triggers the anima archetype and you find yourself thinking about her all the time, ruminating and it then gets projected back out and you start looking for that girl. Okay, that's that's really interesting. You know, some of my um, older friends, say of my dad's generation, obviously Princess Leia is not so much an, an image for my generation, but she really was for the older generation. And I've seen some people who basically, they they live in Star Wars and they still live in Star Wars. They, they, they went to see it in 1977 or 78 and they come away and it's like Princess Leia is the girl for me. They, they make a joke out of this in pop culture, I believe. It could be Friends, yeah. which, which I don't like, but Jane does like Friends. There's this whole thing about the Princess Leia bikini and how every man's fantasy is for everyone to wear Princess Leia's bikini, which for me doesn't make any sense. But I guess from what you're saying in terms of an introject, it's not Princess Leia as an objective character, which is resonating with people. It's what they have put into the image of Princess Leia, right? That would be an introject. Yeah, um, you, you have the narrative, which is the film and the story, which, which men then engage with. And then having engaged, they, as you say, interject out, they appropriate that, they assimilate it to their anima complex. And then the thing starts to behave autonomously, which complexes do, particularly really powerful ones, ones that are meant to be powerful because they're pushed by instinct, like the anima complex, backed up by the archetype. Uh, and this is where it can get problematical because it can then start to influence the whole economy, if you like, of the psyche. It can be affected by that one image. Yep. Okay. So I guess we covered the anima, I guess, in, in brief detail, but just as yep. like a general idea. I'm interested then in terms of building up to this idea of actually wedding the anima and what that means. But I guess, first of all, the anima itself is, uh, as it is shown in films, and I think people usually like to, to see, would be the love interest. But it also comes across in a negative form as well. Yep. You've got, yes, a, like the same with all of these different ideas, there is a positive pole and yes. there is a negative pole. So yep. in what ways could this anima complex i imagine it would be the complex rather than the actual archetype it's itself come out in in a both. negative form it's both both okay well because yeah. so to, to use the example you project onto a girl she's beautiful yeah. and it draws you towards her just as the most concrete everyday example everyone might have experiences with how yeah. might that manifest with another girl if it was a negative pole of the anima projecting well the the, the first and obvious one is you might be rejected hmm and then as the backdraft of the energy which you've imbued this person with then flows back into you in a negative way and it affects your self-esteem. That's, that's the first uh, layer, just the rejection layer. Mm. And then in terms of character, this might be a wholly inappropriate person to relate with, but you let them in because there's a tendency then to not only project on, onto the love interest, it's also to bring them into your being at every level. Uh, and that can affect your mental health and your physical health. Everybody will know what this means because obviously relationships do go bad. But then people are still attached because of the magic of the projection onto someone who's basically an abuser, for example. So, so that, that's that side of it. On the inside, rather than on the outside, the negative anima works by causing depression, uh, creating superstition. Uh, by uh, creating a one-sided conscious attitude. For example, I'll use the INTP um, configuration in the Myers-Briggs as an example. Mm -hmm. The negative anima can frighten a man 
who is say in this example INTP off and away from any notion that there's value in his opposite of the ESFJ um, configuration and that then becomes uh, turned into a kind of a superstitious thing um, and that can lead to all sorts of problems as a cascading effect you can get OCD coming from something like this there's all sorts of things mm. and of course the, the anima is the mediator to the psyche uh, for the conscious personality for, for the ego so if the negative pole of, of the anima is, is operating predominantly in a man it's going to disturb everything mm. it's, it's much easier to deal with the notion of the shadow negatively than it is to deal with the anima negatively because of the seductive elements and because we're being driven to find that ideal mate and to reproduce so there's instinctive uh, pressures pushing us and these are the deep psychological reasons why men make mistakes in choosing life partners Mm. I want to go back briefly to what you were saying on the whole rejection front because that I've experienced that but mostly in the social realm actually where say if I open up to somebody um, perhaps it, it, historically under the influence of at least a small amount of alcohol I'd open up I'd reveal myself to them I'd bring them in all social boundaries gone if there was any kind of rejection or perhaps because of my uh, my particular type INTP the FE facsimileing as NE presumed rejection on their particular b b behalf it, I'd get a feeling that wasn't quite depression but it does fit with what is how Jung described it in his collected works anima possession which and he described it perhaps in more uh, colloquial words from his day as yep. uh, acting like a woman basically yeah, yeah. in those those sort of typical terms where I'd become sort of moody and withdrawn nobody likes me that type of thing is that is would that be the negative pole of the anima then as sort of a concrete example coming back at me Yes, but remember, there is value even in the, in the negative. Because in terms of like a feedback and reorientation to make sure absolutely. that you learn from the experience. If you work with it, you have the impetus to change and, and to switch back into a, into a positive relationship. So the potential for the positive and the negative exist internally as anticipations of real external experience because our ancestors have experienced both sides of relationship, positive and negative. But a self-regulating psyche, if it's working in, at its optimal uh, level of uh, homeostasis, would utilize the negative as impetus to restore the positive. Mm. If it's not regulating properly for whatever reason, then you get an over-amping of the negative and you start to get psychopathology. Mm. Okay. So in, in that rejection example, then, the lesson learned would be don't open up with people that quickly. Because the initial response, if I was to listen completely to that, so obviously you say the psyche is homeostatic and it's balancing. So yeah. its compensation is not the complete answer in no. a way. So no, it's, it's not, not like you reading your dreams tells you eternal wisdom, for example. Mm -hmm. So if I listen to its complete compensation, it would be do not engage with people on that level unless you've got like a written contract that they're not going to reject you, you know? But I, I guess that's not the case. It would be to listen to it and be, be more careful. Perhaps in my case, it would be like, yeah don't have three pints with people who you haven't met yet when you're very, very excited. You know, yeah. that kind of thing, right? Well, I, I think there's a specific problem to do with the state of our culture now that what you've just described about written contracts, yeah, that, that there is some, you know, evidence of that going on, but mm -hmm. the evolutionary aspect of our psyche has not anticipated that. It's what Jung would have called contra naturum. It's against nature to do that. Mm itself once the two biological sexes 
to interact and to reproduce. And that's a main impetus for the psyche and for social relationships. If we go against that, we're going to make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes we're going to move things on. But sometimes there's going to be serious mistakes made, very, very serious mistakes. And those mistakes turn up firstly in individuals and then in cultures as being pathological. Mm, gotcha. Okay. So on this idea of then wedding the anima, we've got, we've, we yeah. know what the anima is. We've got this positive pole. We've got this negative pole, which perhaps is a resultant of the positive pole initially. You've got all this emotion. You've got all these ideas. But Jung did speak about the idea of wedding the anima. And of course, over individuation, that's an idea to have. Yeah. What precisely then does that mean? Okay. What I'm trying to do is, is, is to keep away from too much over symbolization. If, if you follow my, uh, my drift on that, it'd be very, very easy to, to talk about the chemical wedding and alchemy. Yep. Yep. The Mysterium, the Coniontionis. Mm -hmm. Yep. All of that stuff. And to me, that's an abstraction away from everyday life for most people. And it's unnecessary because it's symbolic. Mm-hmm. So we, we need to keep away from that. If you're going to, first of all, understand that the anima exists objectively outside of the ego, that, that's a task in and of itself. It mediates through symbols. Absolutely, yes. And we can, we can find all the evidence we need for this, and it's in Jung's collected works. That, that's all there. But if we go after the symbol, the problem is that symbols are hypnotic. They induct people. They fascinate them and they start to lose their direction and their orientation uh, to everyday life. Uh, and I mm. don't recommend people do that. I don't, because if they have any psychopathology at all in them, and who hasn't, there'll be a, a tendency then to move away from reality and towards the fascination of the inner world. And you're much more likely to become a victim to the negative anima if you do that. Yeah. So having said all of that, right, then I'm gonna have to use some metaphors. <laughs> First of all, um, or analogies, you, you cannot integrate the anima into the ego. You just cannot do it. It's, it's a wrong choice of words. The anima is a huge, huge thing in terms of structure, in terms of energy, uh, in terms of content. You can't do it. The ego is a relatively small thing. It's the nuclear complex of consciousness, which contains an aspect of our persona, that aspect that we're aware of, and also our self-concept. It has an executive role in adaptation to the outer world and a receptive and then later interactive role with respect to the inner world. So it's quite a small thing. It's known in experimental psychology, for example, that consciousness can only hold a certain amount of information before it reaches overload. And they talk about the magic number of seven plus or minus two chunks of information. That's it, that's all you've got. When you think about something as big as the anima in terms of just a complex all of the summation of your experiences throughout the whole of your life however old that you may be at any one time you could not cram all of that into that narrow consciousness and expect the ego to function it would not it would burst it would fragment mm. now that's um, one way of describing it another way of describing the problem of trying to assimilate something that's too big for the conscious personality to hold is to say that the person becomes insane Mm. psychotic you don't want that either preferably not no definitely not so the, the proper way to look at, at the anima is to align it to, to the ego to align it to consciousness which again using a metaphor if you imagine that you, you have the ego complex here that's the nuclear complex of, of consciousness 
with a field around it of what can be conscious. And then we move the anima complex firstly into a safe distance from it where there can be communication. And some of the contents of the anima complex can be assimilated functionally into the ego. But if you try and bring this in and bear in mind, it'll be massive. It would just destroy the ego. You can't yes. do that. And if you do try and do that, unless you have one of these two systems in place, a religion to contain those forces, mm -hmm. then it's possible to do that up to a point, but even then the religion will run out of it, its capacity to control it. Secondarily, some kind of creative or artistic expression that can act as a lightning rod, a conductor, a, a way of taking the, 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 this really powerful energy and putting it into the outside world. And this is something that we should discuss in a later podcast because creativity is essential if you're going to relate to the unconscious. It wants to produce things. It wants to create changes in the outside world. And it has a massive bandwidth, massive, which is why it communicates in symbols. Symbols are, are very broadband information carriers. So if, if you can then create a symbol in the outside world, you transfer that force from within your mind and put it into something concrete that you can relate to safely. Mm. So religion and art can, to some extent, contain these massive tidal forces from the unconscious. You can't just rationally try and integrate it into ego consciousness. It'll blow you away. But what you can do is bring it into relationship consciously and then have an exchange of energy and information between those structures. So you modify the ego sufficiently to be able to relate to it. You're much more likely to maintain a healthy and therefore positive relationship to the animal if you do that. Than mm. and I'm sorry if that's technical, but that's the way it is. That, that, no, 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 that, that, that makes perfect uh, sense. On, really on, the, on the creativity front, just really quickly, because um, it mirrors my own story in, in a way. There are people who, for example, are in a nine to five and there's a big meme on the, especially in online business spheres, perhaps yeah. inappropriately, which is like escape the nine to five, escape, be yourself, you know, do all this other stuff. And obviously lots of people can't do that. They have to sustain themselves financially. They have to eat. But if you're saying that creativity in some kind is essential for relating with the anima and the anima complex, yeah, exactly. then it makes sense as to why people who fall into a nine to five job they don't enjoy perhaps sitting in an office come away being depressed and anxious and they don't understand it and then yeah. from my experience anyway the way especially young guys tend to compensate for that is masculine images which is the idea of grind it's called hustle porn and things like that on the internet which is what yeah, grind that, grind that is. Mm -hmm. that's an over amping of one-sidedness um if a man overamps himself in terms of his masculinity, then the subtext to that at an instinctive level is you're more likely to attract women, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pumping yeah. weights or you're being alpha or whatever, then you draw women to you. Well, that's because you're not going to them. If you have to attract them to you, you're not going to them and attracting them actively. It's a passive, instinctive default position. And it has problems. It has problems, because it has problems for health, although these men would not want to accept that because they're just over-amping their masculinity. And of course they are men and they therefore think to do that is the right thing. Mm. But that's a positive feedback loop that's going in a negative direction. If they made themselves more interesting to women, they could conserve an awful lot of this excess energy that goes into pumping themselves up in the wrong ways. Mm -hmm. You make yourself more interesting to women, not only by being a good, strong man who can go out and get resources, but by being able to relate to them and offering other things and this is where an understanding of the animus the equivalence of the anima in women is vital for men 
But again, there's a tendency for men to want to only understand what they imagine as the woman within Mm. or miss completely the fact that if you have a social relationship to a woman, you're going to interface with her animus. And if you don't know what that is, if you don't know what the nature of the animus is, what it expects in terms of biology and depth psychology, what its anticipations are of you as a man, you're going to mess up again. And what you do then, you fall back on default instincts. And the purpose of that default instinct really has nothing to do with relationships, but competition between men. Mm. So they can kill each other. And then, look, girls, you've got to breed with me because I'm the last man standing. And when you think about it, that is a really bad positive feedback loop. Yes, it is. It is. It and, is. It, and it allows the negative animus in women to start to talk about toxic masculinity. Full circle to the whole politics yeah. realm. Okay, well, uh, I guess at the beginning you described the anima as the relating factor. And I yes. guess you can see, based on what you said in terms of this positive feedback loop, yeah. how they're missing that because it's not yeah. they're not relating to actual real women. Okay, mm. well, that, that, that makes perfect sense. We've got, so you need so creativity and yeah. religion and things like that can help you contain and get closer yes. to the anima and the anima complex. Yeah. How would one, generally speaking, from your clinical experience begin to relate closer to their own anima and their anima complex in a productive way, which is you could colloquially call or metaphorically call wedding the anima. Is it relating to real life women? Is that the primary way of doing it? It's the primary way because we were talking in a developmental sense earlier about what happens when you form the anima complex and before that the, the, the primary caregiver. All that's early on. I think we're assuming now this is later on. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, okay. So, so for example, an audience member who comes here and they're like, either they've heard from, from us or they've read in Jung's works, they're like, okay, how do I develop my anima? You know, they're, yeah. they're ready, they're raring to go. <laughs> well, the, the, most people are only ever going to become conscious of this when a problem arises. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it is. People live in their ego. They live in their field of consciousness, which is why you should do everything you can to increase your capacity for consciousness not just in terms of chunked bits of information that I was describing before, but what's contained in those chunked bits of information, what you can refer to. And this is basically your education in life as you, as you go along. If you lack that, then every encounter you have with the anima is likely to be some form of conflict. Mm. And you asked me specifically clinically. Well, obviously, if it's a clinical scenario, then there's been a problem. Yes. And that's what you see. Now, the anima is, is, is present as a force throughout life, much more so than the shadow, uh, as I, I want to explain. It goes deeper into the personality and, and covers everything. So any kind of significant psychopathology, anything, uh, you will find the anima is active there, but not necessarily the shadow. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a clinical uh, example. Please do. Um, this, this particular chap was in his 50s, and this was a long time ago, nearly 30 years ago. Um, and he was a very uh, good-looking guy. He looked like, um, I can never remember his name, famous Hollywood guy. And he used to play up on that, a Hollywood actor from the 40s, mm -hmm. uh, Cary Grant. Oh, yes. yes, yeah. Yeah. He, he was a spit of him uh, and a really nice guy. Uh, but he had the most crippling OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And he worked in um, an accountancy department, which made it worse because his environment reinforced the ritual counting and, and so forth. And he was absolutely crippled by that. He happened to be married to um, 
a relate counsellor in the UK. Relate is at, like used to be called the Marriage Guidance uh, Centre. They they specialise in relationships. Um, and she was a very nice woman, um, very facilitative. Um, went well with him uh, in terms of appearance uh, and in terms of education and culture. On the surface, everything was fine, but he had this terrible OCD. And then he became fascinated with a woman whose name was Stone. I'll say that because there's no way you can, you, and it is relevant. There's no way anybody could, could, could track this down so long ago and, and, and so many things have happened since. Miss Stone became the obsession of his life and it was his secret that he then carried a stone around in his pocket that was Miss Stone. Mm. And of course, you and I will know, and anyone who's educated on Jung will know what the likely symbolism behind that was. Mm -hmm. uh, and he became a medical referral. And um, what we had to do then was to get inside what the symbol meant and what the projection onto Miss Stone meant. Bear in mind, he had a, a very good marriage with a very nice wife. There was no reason at all for him, it would appear, to project onto a woman uh, outside of his marriage, but he did. Yeah. And it was all to do with the anima's capacity and function to relate on the inside. Now, he, um, he trusted us completely. He, he literally, uh, despite what he went through and his intense, I mean, he would sweat profusely. It was so bad. The physiological side of his condition was absolutely terrible. One of the worst I've ever seen, the, the anxiety and the pumping of adrenaline. Uh, he put himself into our hands uh, and trusted us completely did a full case history and then we did um, what we call an enactment which is very different to psychodrama mm -hmm. um, you basically have a controlled environment and you'll have maybe six or seven therapists with one patient client um, and the room is full of symbols that the light is um, toned down and basically you you create a waking dream for that person everyone in that room knows the case history they've all been fully briefed the other four or five therapists have never met this person before, never will meet them again, but they're there on his side and they're gradually dissociated and brought into this three-dimensional dream to do with their problems where they pick up symbols and pictures or whatever it is um, to articulate their inner experience. And that then went, um, went on. So the therapists then start to get actively involved as happens with dreams. Of course, the fabric starts to, to evolve. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that when he was um, five years old at school, he uh, stole a pen knife from the soccer room at school and he took it home and his father uh, humiliated him and, and said, no, you're coming back with me now and you're going to give that back to the teacher, a woman. Hmm. Uh, and he felt humiliated. The, the, uh, the pen, uh, sorry, the pen knife uh, became a symbol for his masculinity and how, it was, how that was humiliated in front of a woman. Yep. Years later, that turns up as OCD. And um, we asked his wife to be present to witness this because she was skeptical because it was completely outside of her technical experience to work in this way. Um, relate counselors, relate therapists, work compared to depth psychologists very, very superficially. But she witnessed what was going on and was extremely moved by it. The whole atmosphere was very, very powerful. And at a key point when he started to sweat again profusely and shake and uh, we saw everything digging in, uh, one of our colleagues put this black cape uh, cloth over him uh, and then stood on the chair. So he was about seven or eight feet tall or more uh, behind this guy. 
and he, he heard a noise, he looks over his shoulder, and then he grabs a plastic sword off the floor, which represented the pen knife. He stood up, shouted Excalibur, turned around, whacked this poor guy, knocked him off the, off the chair, jumped on him <laughs> with his plastic sword and started to beat him repeatedly. Um, <laughs> funny when I look back now. But then when all opposition ceased from beneath the black cloth, he stood up and he held it aloft. And at that point, he was imbued of his masculine power in front of his woman, right? And he took Miss yes. Stone out of his pocket and said, I have no need of this anymore. He'd taken the sword from the stone. Oh, man. And the anima had released him in front of his wife, who was the confirming woman. Job done in one day. So 30 years of OCD um, dispensed with in about two hours. It took, it took us about two hours. But we then followed that up with follow-up sessions. We made, made sure everyone, everyone was all right because there's no Humpty Dumpty jobs. We don't break people down and not put them back together. Um, but that was a very emotional um, experience for all of us. Uh, and I found out several years later, he was still free. Still completely Fantastic. free. Um, and I mentioned the animal because you see, it's, it wasn't so much his father humiliating him. He was humiliated in front of a woman who was, who was like, you know, in loco parentis for his mother, the school teacher in reception class. And yes. the pen knife, if you like, in a Freudian sense, became something yep. else. Uh, and then it was all linked. And when it was time for him to solve this, he couldn't do it. And he, he, he put up with OCD for 30 years until the animal in frustration said, I'm going to jump out on some woman called Stone and we'll get you to see that's what you need to do. Now, we'd pick these elements up Obviously, we didn't tell him what we thought it was, didn't tell him about Excalibur, we just left the plastic sword there, let him carry the stone around, um, and his psyche did it all by itself, without any prompting from us. All the therapists were, were briefed, and we knew that we should offer the opportunity for him to, to do this, but it had to come from him, otherwise it would not be genuine, and he would not have won. Wow. Okay, that's that's a good story. So Pulling the sword from the stone as well, like that's stone, a plastic one, and it, he was able then to dispense with the stone. Okay, so stone at work, and he came to me and he said, "What should I do with respect to Miss Stone and his fascination with her?" And I said, "What?" And this is controversial. Therapists would say it was, but again, I went on intuition. I always go on intuition. I said, sail as close to the wind as you possibly can without crossing that line of actually physically having an affair. Um, but I said, if you don't do that, you're not going to be able to access the energy in your psyche, which is powering the OCD and will also paradoxically release you once you understand fully what's going on. And he said, how am I going to do that? And I said, we have to go inside the psyche. We have to give you an opportunity to engage with it. Well, how will we do that? And then I explained the enactment process to him. I said, it's tough, it's very, very demanding, uh, but everyone will be there for you. And your wife must be present if, if she would agree to it, because she needs to witness what you're going through in order to understand as a relate counselor, why you're fascinated with another woman. Yes, so, so the idea isn't then that 
you had this is the whole sexual idea that a, be- a more beautiful woman than your wife turned up and you're projecting on her because it's telling you to break away from your wife and instead yeah. breed with this woman that's not the case it was the yeah. anima trying to give a particular message to you as to why your current maladaptation yes. in this case OCD exists Absolutely. it was trying to trying to force your energy or to, to force the problem so to bring this full circle I guess to the idea of wedding the anima then it's, a, it's not just a relating factor on the outside, it's also the relating factor on the inside as well Absolutely. at the same yes, time. So if you are, I guess, the end result of having wedded the anima or having strong, being more aligned with your own anima and anima yeah. complex, would you say that the biggest biomarker of that is you're happy and you're adapted, controlling for other outside scenarios yes, yeah. such as depression in a family member, for example? Yes, I always, you know, uh, and other people have noted, I always go back to homeostasis and self-regulation. My justification for that is twofold. Jung himself said the psyche is a self-regulating system and it must be in balance. And the second uh, justification for that is health, optimal health. And working in frontline healthcare with a whole bandwidth of people suffering from all sorts of conditions taught me that you do that. You go for the optimal balance. Sometimes when you treat a psychosomatic transduction, the stress reaction that turns up in the body symbolically. If you treat that, other things self-correct. Yeah. It's like a car, you know, once it develops one problem, it'll develop another because of that problem. And if you put one thing right, other things then start to, to run better. And it's exactly the same with people. But can I just interject and say, mm-hmm. when you said a more beautiful woman, I, I'll be quite frank with, with you here, in my experience, the actual quality of the woman that a man might project on outside of his relationship in terms of her you know, good looks usually isn't better than the wife because hmm. it's, it's not the important thing. Our young men, forgive me, uh, might think that it should be because that would justify justify ad hoc why they feel more attracted perhaps to a certain woman than the woman that they're with it's a, well how do i rationalize well she's prettier well very often uh, when men have affairs it's not with more attractive women than their wife it's with less attractive women physically it's because something else is there that resonates internally rather than externally and it happens with women as well. When, when women have affairs, very often it's not with a better looking man or a richer man or a more intelligent man. It's whatever is missing that's not been properly worked through in that relationship. And to go back to, sorry, uh, to go back to wedding to the anima, it's not a one-off thing. Uh, it's a lifespan thing, as you said earlier. It's a continual process of adaptation, and it depends what the challenges are at any one time for you to meet, which is why I bring it back all the time to it being a relating function. If you relate properly, you're going to have less problems. Relate internally, relate externally. And understand that this is a dynamic force that you cannot integrate. You know, you just can't do it. Mm. because what would you be if if the ego personality integrated the anima then what is it at that point it changes what are you at that point where's the anima gone well it's now my ego no it doesn't work that way you cannot do that you can have a relationship to it and you can assimilate aspects contents from it or at least relate to them but you certainly cannot wed as in blend completely what young men by the mysterium and, and by the chemical wedding is that 
relationship to the animal is like a wedding. You don't actually blend, but you have a relationship. Marriage is a relationship. You don't become one figure. Mm -hmm. You don't. Even though in the Rosarium, for example, yeah. you yeah. see that, it's a metaphor and it is not a literal thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you don't become one, but it's a relating thing so that you become close and aligned and you can dance with each other, yes. basically. It's, it's symbolic of change from the previous state of being completely one-sided. Yeah, yeah. But it is not a blend of masculine and feminine, so you become a hermaphrodite psychologically as it's depicted in the Rosarium. You go to volume 16 of the Collective Works, Varian Practice of Psychotherapy. Yes. You'll see the whole thing laid out there. And the problem is when people read that, they think I've somehow got to integrate my anima and become this uh, psychological hermaphrodite. But that is not what you're meant to do. Because when you integrate the anima, all you're really doing is becoming aware of your relating function. You're not actually integrating anything that's feminine because the anima is a masculine or an element of masculine psychology. Yeah. So a few mistakes people can make along the way and they can get diverted from the reality of life for decades because they've, they've misunderstood that one fundamental thing. Uh, I guess this makes sense because you said at the beginning, of course, you or halfway through, you come to it with a problem. Yeah. Because you are the ego and you're going about the world, but through a problem that then is an invitation to introspect. So I guess problems yeah. that come up, if I'm wrong, to any audience member who's interested in this type of thing, it's like, are you suffering? Are you relating properly externally? Are you relating properly internally? And are you well adapted? Or are yeah. there things, OCD, that I, that could be a really, really key one. Because of course, there's the whole FAP, the whole no FAP movement yeah, at yeah. the moment, yeah. which, is in, which is enormous. And perhaps rather than fixing that through ways typically people try and fix that, which would be, you know, uh, willpower or top-down value systems, it's more a case of relating internally to your own personal yes, yeah, thread, your own personal myth. As I said earlier, that's over-amped masculinity one-sidedly. Mm. So it's, it's a positive feedback loop going in the wrong direction, leading to a negative result. Yeah. If you want to integrate the anima, you don't over-amp masculinity. You don't become feminine but you don't over-amp instinctive baseline default masculinity. You don't do that. Mm. Okay. Well that, well, that makes perfect sense. I guess we've covered the anima and we've covered uh, how one might go about integrating the anima, including a really cool example. So I guess with that, it's been nice talking with you, Steve, but uh, maybe we should let people get on with their lives and us get on with their lives at the same time. See so you again soon. Yes, thank, thank, thank you, Steve. If anyone's interested in some of the writings Steve has been doing, he does this, uh, I, I guess one of your new fun hobbies is to come onto the Discord server and to do be as helpful as you possibly can with as much information as you can. You can access those by joining up at our Patreon at the $5 tier or higher. It's just uh, to get into our Discord server. Of course, we have other things on there too, including a chat with myself, a chat with Steve. Got a whole community over there. We've got a whole suite of wonderful things to help take your development and your individuation to the next level. So with that, thank you everybody, and thank you Steve, appreciate Hi, it. See you soon.